You're listening to a podcast presentation of Hillside Foursquare Church in Reno, Nevada. Well, again, it's an, it's an honor for me to be here. So grateful for Pastor Louie's invitation, for my wife Natalia and I to, to, to be here is a great joy. Uh, but I also think that the timing of it, it is really good. I think God has some specific things that uh, he wants me to say this morning to encourage you and to maybe even uh, point out some things that God wants to do through this church, what God wants to do in this area, in this community. Uh, I, as Louis said, I, I lived here for, for many years. Uh, actually, uh, my spiritual kind of beginnings started in Incline Village. And uh, Lake Tahoe has a great place in my heart. 40 years ago, it was clear to me uh, more than ever in my life that I was supposed to be in the ministry. And I was teamed up with some amazing people at that time in Lake Tahoe. And uh, they helped me to focus in on what kind of ministry that God was calling me to. So from there, I lived in Carson City for a while and uh, actually moved around quite a bit because uh, I had a heart for church planting. And uh, church planting is a lot of fun, but you have to be flexible because you never know what God's going to do. You never know how long it's going to take to establish uh, a base of operations of God doing something through you, through a group of people. And so for me, this area, this surrounding area has a lot of, still to this day, a lot of relational connection to me. Uh, my daughter, uh, my middle child lives here in, in Reno. And so I have come uh, now and then to see how things are going here. And obviously there's been a lot of changes since I lived here 30 years ago. But uh, there's still a spiritual connection that I feel in my heart. And uh, in 1986, I was on staff with uh, a church that no longer really exists as it once was called University Family Fellowship. And Robert Owens was a spiritual big brother to me. And it was a, a, a lot of firsts for me at that time. In 1986, it was my first full-time position at a church. I did my first wedding. I did my first funeral. And um, this was before the internet, so I couldn't like how to perform a funeral. I couldn't, I couldn't Google it. So I just started asking around. I asked other pastors, and most of them were like, oh, you'll be fine. And um, it's kind of the way that I learned how to swim. My dad is a very loving man. But I said, Dad, I, I want to learn how to swim. He says, all right. He took me to a swimming pool, grabbed me, and threw me in the deep end and said, swim. And uh, I made it to the edge, of course, uh, and that's how I learned how to swim. And so in some ways, that's how I learned to do ministry. Uh, it was uh, a great learning process, but you know, what it did to me is I said, I don't want to see any, any other man or woman ever have to go through this type of training. <laughs> so uh, I have committed my heart and my life as a pastor to take care of the people who take care of people. And that's my heart. And in around uh, the early 90s, 92, I began going to Russia. And uh, my wife, Natalia, is Russian. Uh, and it was supposed to be a one and done deal. Just, in fact, I didn't want to go. 
uh, I thought it was crazy because uh, being Mexican-American, I speak Spanish, and I thought I would do, if I did any mission work, it would be, of course, in a Spanish-speaking country. So for me to go to Russia, I thought it was a joke, but when the pastor uh, put down an airline ticket and said, you're going to Russia, <laughs> I was going to Russia, <laughs> you know? It's one of those things. And so, but I encountered God in a way that to this day, I've never seen God move like that. We were seeing true revival. We were seeing thousands upon thousands of people come to Christ in these auditoriums in Moscow. Uh, we had baptismals, big tanks, uh, but we ran out of room. It, it got to the point where we would fill up our bathtubs in our hotel rooms to baptize people because we just there was not enough space. There wasn't enough places to baptize people. And of course, that grabbed my heart, and I've been going to Russia ever since. And right now, it's not a good time to visit Russia. Even though I have a visa, I can still go, but Natalia and I have decided that right now is not the best time because of the instability of things. But it's still in my heart. So being here, a lot of things happen to me. This, I look at the Reno... Uh, Lake Tahoe area as my spiritual greenhouse, as a place where I had to grow up fast out of necessity, but because of what God the Holy Spirit was doing. And so to this day, I am convinced that there is a, a magnetic draw to this area in, in a lot of ways. I believe there's a magnetic draw to it in a, in a, in a not so nice way when it comes to things like you know, gambling and, and those type of things because a lot of people have, you know, their lives have been destroyed by that. But I also realize the gaming industry is one of the major industries of the area. And so when I pastored here, we would have Bible studies in casinos uh, when, back when it was the MGM. And we would have uh, Bible studies at 2 o'clock in the morning for the workers that worked there. So we were able to understand the necessity of getting involved in every nook and cranny of this community. And so for me, I just believe that God not only wants to work here, but he draws his children here. He draws his people here. And I would say that God has drawn some of the most faithful, the most obedient and courageous and determined Christians I've ever known. And I mean it with all my heart. I mean, living in Chico, that's yeah, tough. You know, you're dealing with very liberal town, university is there. And so you have a lot of things that can break your heart as a believer. But it, in, in light of things that can create persecution or, or things like that, what you're experiencing here is so much more intense than what we experience in other places. And so the fact that you're here and have chosen to be here and to be chosen to be part of a church community, that says a lot to me about you. And that's why I want to just tell you that it's no accident that you're here, that uh, you being a believer in this community helped to shape the story of what God is doing and what God can do. Because sometimes we look at, hey, how's God going to move in that community? And we look around for people or names when we really should just look in the mirror. That's how God wants to affect community through everyday people just like you and I. But there has to be a sense of, of, 
uh, sovereignty with that. We have to believe that we are here because we've been placed here by God, that we've been drawn here because God has willed it, has desired it because of his desire, what he wants to see done in this area. And so I know that you've been uh, going through the book of Acts and we have been going through the book of Acts 2 in Chico and we are... (laughs) We make a joke of it because it was supposed to be just a series that we did over the summer, right? You got three months, go through the book of Acts. Uh, Today, one of our pastors is teaching Acts chapter six. That's how far we've gotten. And, And it's because God just has so much to say through these books, through this story. Well, it's because it's our story. The book of Acts, if, if you look at your Bibles, a lot of Bibles will say at the beginning, you know, Acts chapter 1, it'll say the Acts of the, the apostles, the disciples, the followers of Christ. This is our story. We're, we're still writing chapters in that book. By being here today, this is another one of the paragraphs or another one of the chapters in the book of Acts. And so you being here in this city, in this town at this time, is that you are part of God's testimony of what he does in a city. And very specifically, too. You don't have to turn there, but in in Romans, I was thinking of this. Paul is talking about how the catastrophe happened with Adam and Eve and how they brought sin into the world. But he was also talking about what happened as a result of that by God sending his son. It says here in, uh, speaking of the, uh, the gift of Jesus, in verse 15 it says, but the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned, through the one, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So when Adam and Eve blew it, they brought, our spiritual parents brought sin, death, and destruction into the world. But God immediately released a countermeasure. He knew what he was going to do in order to reverse this. And God's countermeasures are always perfect and they're, and they're complete. And so what Romans is telling us here is that even though there's this systemic sickness that plagues us as humanity because of the sin of the one, or the two, in that sense, Adam and Eve, even though when that sin seems overwhelming, God cures it completely. And he did so through his son, Jesus. But it doesn't just stop there. The salvation of humanity comes through the death on the cross. We celebrated that in communion this morning. But it's ongoing. It's pervasive. It doesn't stop because the sickness continues generation to generation to generation. And the only way you can put a stopgap measure in this systemic sin that has plagued us since day one is that God takes a group of people like you and me and says, now go out there 
and bring the cure. Go out there and let humanity know that they don't have to die in their desperation, in their sickness, in their addictions, in their sin. But through Jesus Christ, they can be made whole again. And everybody wants that. In the end, people want a life free from problems. I don't think that people wake up in the morning hoping for death and destruction in their lives. They're looking for some type of way to make ends meet or to keep their marriages together or to make their children don't fall off the edge into some addiction. They want a sense of wholeness. So as human beings, we look at all kinds of different ways in order to make that happen. But if without Jesus Christ, those measures will fall short. They'll only last for a little while. And so for us personally, even when sin seems overwhelming and unstoppable, Jesus, his grace and his power and his authority stops the unstoppable. And that's, that's encouraging to us to know that no matter how out of control things become, that Jesus Christ is the one that can come and speak to the tsunamis in our life and say, stop. He's the one that can say to the wind and the waves, enough. And that's our hope. And that's our solution. And that's our story. That's, again, the book of Acts is this amazing story of what happens when a group of people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit begin to live their lives in a community. Not only does it bring transformation, but it brings revolution. I mean, you think about this idea of revolution, and this is one of those words that we like to grab a hold of because it sounds so, you know, ominous. And, uh, but revolution literally means to take a system that is no longer working and to revolt against it and present another system that will bring the answers that people are looking for. And so the revolution of Jesus is to take the systems of the world that people depend on and say, it doesn't work. Let us revolt against that and let's bring about a whole new way of living. And that's you and that's me. You and I are part of this story when we read the book of Acts. You've been reading about people like Stephen, the first deacon, and Philip the evangelist that was whisked away by God after he baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. We read about Peter and John from the get-go on the way to, the, to pray at the temple when they got to the gate beautiful and they healed the lame man, preached their first sermon, and thousands, thousands came to know who Jesus Christ was. And now we're at this point in Acts, Acts chapter 9, where we're looking at this conversion of this man, Saul, who becomes Paul. You turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9 and verse 20. This is where I'm picking up from where Pastor Louis left off. And let's read that together. Acts chapter 9. Well, actually... Finishing off verse 19. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And I'm reading out of the New American Standard Bible. It's the Bible that Jesus reads. Um, I could, sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed 
and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. There they were, they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through the opening in the wall and lowered him in a large basket. And when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples. But they were afraid of him. All of them were afraid of him not believing that he was a disciple, but Barnabas. Barnabas, I love Barnabas. I can't wait to meet him when I get to heaven. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving, freely in, uh, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Again, a fascinating story, powerful story, how this predator, Saul, becomes an apostle. How this rage-filled terrorist becomes a brother filled with the Holy Spirit. Understand, that's who Saul was to them. He was a, a maniac. He was someone that the church was deathly afraid of. Even the disciples of Jesus in Jerusalem were afraid of Saul. But what's interesting is that God, in expanding his kingdom, takes people like Saul and not only converts them, but purposefully inserts them into the community of believers on purpose. He takes these individuals that have a horrible past, a horrible story, and should be, you should be afraid of them, and suddenly puts them into the midst of his church. Luke 4.18, we're not going to turn there, but Luke 4.18, Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then he talks about the commission that's on him as the Messiah, how you're supposed to preach the gospel, preach the good news uh, to, the down, to the impoverished and to those who are downtrodden and those who are blind and those who are overwhelmed, we're supposed to reach them. That's the kingdom of God. But what we're seeing in the book of Acts is something that really has never been done before. Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, but he promises the gift of the Father, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so the church becomes this spirit-filled group of people. But what is that supposed to look like? They don't know because it's never been done before. They haven't seen anything. But what they begin to notice is different things begin to happen in their midst. And so they begin to th see things like 
John and, and James and what they did at the Gate Beautiful in healing the lame man. They see what happens with uh, Stephen and the other deacons. If you, if you look at the life of Stephen, he just wasn't a deacon and a servant. He was somebody that moved in the power of the Holy Spirit. He was prophetic. Even as they were killing him, stoning him to death, Stephen was moved and moving in the Holy Spirit, proclaiming who Jesus Christ was. We begin to see these things and we go, oh, so that's what the kingdom of God looks like. The power, the rule, and the reign of Jesus. This is, they begin to realize that this is what it was going to be like as they followed Christ and, and were inspired by the Holy Spirit. When we read the book of Acts, it should inspire our hearts for what is possible. That God is working through people and we really don't, can't predict what it's going to look like today or tomorrow. That's the beauty of the kingdom of God. We can't predict it. Now, when sometimes when we read the Bible, specifically when we're reading the book of Acts, we look at these different things that happen, and we can tend to look at them like it's a prescription of how things must be, like a formula. And there are certain things that are prescriptions. When the... Uh, crowds look at uh, uh, Peter and John and say, hey, what must we do to be saved? Do you remember Peter's response? You need to repent, be baptized, be filled with the Holy Spirit. He gave them a prescription. But the other things that we read about, we realize that these are more of descriptions. This is what happens to that. This is what happened to those people. These people got together and they broke bread together and this is what happened to them. And so we begin to realize that this expansion, this mission of the kingdom can look like anything God the Holy Spirit wants it to look like. And that's why we can wake up every morning and say, I wonder what God's going to do today. I'm yielded to you. You can do whatever you want with me. And that scares me to say that out loud. Because that means you could do things that will make me very uncomfortable or make other people very uncomfortable. But that's what we're starting to see in this as we're reading the book of Acts. It's a work in progress. And to borrow a word, it's an evolution. It's something that is evolving. And it's supposed to be that way. It's like anything. Did you, when, those of you who are married, did you walk up to your spouse at the altar when you got married and said, okay, this is what I expect over the next 20 years? I expect this, I expect my bed to be made a certain way. I expect my eggs to be cooked sunny side up. You know what I mean? We, we, we don't. We kind of basically knew what we wanted, but then it begins to evolve. And it can be a wonderful thing or it can be a heartbreaking thing, right? And so this whole process, the excitement of what God could do is, is thrilling, but it's also very scary. And Saul's conversion to Paul was actually a traumatic event for the church. It was traumatizing. If you go back and, because you all read the first part of Acts 9, right? Didn't you cover Okay. So you know that when God came to Ananias, when Paul was blind and he was suffering and he was somewhere in a little house hiding out, God came to Ananias and said, hey, this is what I want you to do regarding this man Saul. You remember that Ananias basically put up a fuss said, wait, wait, no, not that guy. 
And that's our human tendency. It's like, no, no, you can't be serious. But it's also this, so like I said, what God could have us do is thrilling, but it can be scary. Paul's conversion challenged the people to open their eyes, open the church, uh, uh, challenged the church to open its eyes of what the kingdom of God really is about and what salvation of individual people could bring to the church itself. These are some of the things that I think the church learned when Saul was converted. They learned that salvation is something that can be immediate, but also time-consuming. When we receive Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we are, we are saved. But there are still so many aspects of us that have yet to be saved. There are so many habits and things that we are dependent on or have given ourselves over to that need to be transformed over time. That's why we do church. That's why we have life groups. It's because we recognize that there's still part of this thing called the flesh that rebels against what God wants to do. And so when you see a guy like this, Saul, this maniac terrorist of the church, you begin to realize, oh, this conversion process is time-consuming. It, it's going to take a while. It's not, he's not going to be instantly a good boy. He is going to be someone that needs to prove through his words and through his actions that he truly is converted. Yes, he is saved, but there are so many parts of him that have yet to be transformed. The other thing, too, is that it's an inside-out thing, is that when we are converted to become saved, it happens here, but then it has to manifest on the outside. And the church began to realize this. But even though Paul showed, or in this case Saul, showed that he understood who Jesus Christ was, understood that he was wrong, went about trying to correct the things that he had said to others, they still did this to him. They still kind of held him off at a distance. And I think that God really wants to reveal some things about our prejudices when it comes to that. That when we hear of so-and-so or we meet so-and-so that has been saved, there's a part of us in our old ways, our old patterns, we can tend to do this. And that's a revealing. And you read about that in Acts chapter 6, where the Hellenistic uh, Jews, the, the, the widows, were being overlooked. And I'm, I'm sure Pastor Lee went over that with you. It's like those who had been born outside of Jerusalem, who are now living in Jerusalem, there was a bias and a prejudice against them by those that were born and raised in Jerusalem. And that was something that God revealed, this little subliminal prejudice and bias that existed in a saved group of people. You get it? And so I think that's why God saved Saul the way that he did is because God wanted to say, look, and I'm also going to reveal some things about you all in this process because it's only going to get worse because you're going to see all kinds of individuals that you would never even touch, break bread with, or have a conversation with that are going to become a part of your community. And it's going to reveal what's inside your heart when they show up. And it can be uncomfortable. Saul's conversion revealed these things. Revealed fear. Revealed prejudice. It also revealed a limited understanding of what God was really about. And I think it's, it, it can hit me sometimes. 
I can have a really difficult time with what God is up to. And it's because I am putting my own sense of constraints on how God does it and how he ought to do it. I don't know if you've ever had those kind of conversations with God. You say, Lord, this doesn't make any sense. Why would you do this? It'd be so much easier if you just did this. And I'm grateful that God doesn't listen to me most of the time. Because my human ways of thinking and my human ideologies, I can lay them on the gospel and I can lay them on God. And God's like, thanks, but no, that's not what I'm doing. And a lot of times we are left dumbfounded because we don't understand what God is up to. It isn't until we see the final results where we go, oh, oh, I get it. I see what you were up to. I still don't like how you did it, Lord. <laughs> but okay. You know, it's one of those things. And that's what Saul's conversion also revealed about the church. Now, even though Saul, soon to be Paul, was a Pharisee, was a, a Pharisee terrorist is what I'll call him. And you can look at the details in the book of Philippians where Paul himself literally lists out what he was like and who he was. But Paul looks at that and says, look, all of that was just rubbish. All of that was just cow manure. I don't want to have anything to do with that. And so the church had to come to a place, especially the disciples in Jerusalem, where they had to trust the conversion process. They had to trust that God was doing something that they couldn't understand and that they needed to open up their hearts to this guy. Well, but they still wouldn't do it. Now, I don't know how long Paul was knocking at the door of the disciples in Jerusalem, like we read in verse 27, 26, 25. I don't know, but I mean, talk about rejection. Here you finally figure out that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You recognize everything you've been doing has been wrong and how horribly you've hurt the church. Paul goes on to say that in his letters. of Like, I'm the least of the apostles because I, I tormented and persecuted the church. People who I now call my brothers and sisters and who I love with all my, own, with all my heart. There was a time I was out to kill you and drag you off to prison. So that was something that Paul carried with him, I think, until the day that he died. It was something that did hurt him deeply. But at the same time, here he is in Jerusalem, knocking on the door of the disciples saying, can we talk? At what I did in Damascus, haven't you heard about what I did in Damascus and how I came to the Lord and how I was challenging the Pharisees there in Damascus? But it says that the disciples still wouldn't see Saul. So enter Barnabas. Now, I don't know if you've taken the time in, from Acts chapter 4. There's a little bit of a description of who Barnabas was, but also what his name means. Does anybody remember from Acts chapter 4 what the name Barnabas actually means? Anybody remember? Encourager. What is it? Encourager. Yeah, encourager. Son of encouragement. And it's, his name is very similar to actually what we call, what Jesus called the comforter in, in John chapter 14, John chapter 15. The paraclete, paracletos, the comforter. Jesus says, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to leave you the comforter or the helper. That word paracletos, para means to come alongside of. Kletos means to comfort or to encourage. Barnabas' names literally means son who comes along and does this to you. 
And so literally at this point, again, I don't know the conversation, but Barnabas running into Saul saying, you look kind of down, what's the matter? The disciples won't even give me an audience. They won't talk to me. I came all the way here. I've been preaching my heart out, preaching my guts out, trying to make up for the horrible things that I did. They won't see me. So what happens? Barnabas says, come with me. Takes him by the hand says, come on. And it also shows you what kind of influence Barnabas had with the disciples. But Barnabas had to go to the leaders of the body of Christ, <laughs> the, the disciples, right? We're talking Andrew, right? We're talking Simeon and all these different disciples were so afraid of Saul that Barnabas came along and said, guys, listen to me. And he opened that door and he declared that God truly had done something in this man's life. And it says that he talked to them about specifically, verse 27, Barnabas took hold of him. And I love that. I don't know how he took, maybe, maybe Saul was dragging his feet. It's like, no, forget them. They don't want to see me. I don't want to see them. I don't know. But it said, literally took a hold of him, said, come on, you're coming with me. Some of us are supposed to be Barnabases. I'm just going to say that. Some of us are supposed to take on this amazing anointing and say, come with me. And so Barnabas grabs a hold of him and brings him to the apostles. And then he goes on. And what does he do? He describes to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And so Barnabas goes through this testimonial to the disciples and says, this is what this man has said. This is what this man has done. And I confirm it. I stand by him. And as a result, this declaration of the words and the actions of Saul confirmed in the minds and the hearts of the disciples, at least, that Saul was the real deal. So again, conversion is an inward thing, it's immediate, but our actions and our words have to follow. Somebody has to be able to look at you and say, yeah, they say they're a Christian, and I think that they are because I'm watching them do this. I heard them talk to their wives like this, or their children, or to their coworkers. I don't know about Christianity, but boy, how you talk to people shows me something different. We have a young man who goes to our church that's an atheist, but he keeps coming. And he, he, he goes to the young adults group. He shows up to my men's group now and then. And so finally, one of our pastors there, Pastor Bob, says to him and says, look, you're an atheist, right? And the guy says, oh yeah, I don't believe in God at all. He says, and why, why do you keep coming? He says, the things that you people do and say around here, I can't stay away from it. I just, I, I've never heard people talk like you talk and act like you act. He, I, I, and one night I was able to, he came to men's group and I was able to give him a ride home. And uh, he says, I told my grandma, because he stays with his grandma. He does, his his gra grandmother is raising him. He's about, he's about 17 years old. And uh, I said, well, what does your, your grandma think about you going to church? He says, well, she doesn't agree that I'm going, but she sure likes how I'm acting lately. 
just to. So I, I think he's saved. I, I, I think that there's a part in him that just doesn't want to surrender yet. But it's inevitable, right? It's just one of those inevitable things. But I just thought it was so funny when he's just like, I, I just like hanging out with you guys because I, I like what you do and I like what you say. And that confirms, that, that should be the standing description of those who call themselves followers of Jesus. The other thing that's important through this, and I, want, I just want to end with this, is that community is actually very, very important to the salvation process. Our, our challenge, especially as Protestants or evangelicals, is that we, we have so reduced salvation down to a prayer that we pray. Okay, that, okay you got you to say this prayer. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died on the cross for me. He's like, okay, all right, you're saved. But then we go, now, if you want to, we've got this thing called the church and this and that, which is right. That's how I was raised. But I think that as a community, we, we fail to realize that the conversion process is a community event. That the individual person proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord, their conversion and holistic redemption with Jesus a lot of times doesn't take place because the community doesn't participate. We don't recognize that we are part of the salvation process that the person goes through. When a person says, yes, I accept Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, we believe that their spirits come alive to God. But then what about their heart? What about their emotions? What about their thinking? What about their flesh, their body, what they do with their lives? We have to provide for them a realistic and applicable way to take this thing of salvation and apply it into every arena of their lives. That's who we're supposed to be. That's that coming along, that's that Barnabas call where we come alongside and say, okay, we will help you. We'll get you there. And the other thing about salvation, and we have to see this, is that it goes beyond just saying a prayer, Jesus Christ, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. We have to recognize that when we become saved, we change not just ourselves, we change the community that we step into. So all of, when I become a Christian, I bring all of my baggage with me. And when I bring my baggage with me into the same place where my brothers and sisters live, guess what? You're stuck with my baggage too. But we have this tendency, it's like, you know, can you take, can you take care of that? You know, can you not listen to that music? Can you not, you know, talk that way? Can you not read those books? We, we just don't do that here. Instead of saying, well, that's an interesting book that you're reading. Why do you read that book? You know, this latest thing, what's going on with Palestine and Israel and the Gaza Strip. Young person proclaimed to me loud and proud, a Christian, you know, from the something to the sea, Palestine must, must be free. And I just looked at him and I go, that is so interesting. Tell me how you arrived at that. Instead of reprimanding them, rebuking them, I accept that there's just this young guy that saw something on the internet or heard somebody saying something. And it opened the door to me to start in the Old Testament and show them what happened with Ishmael and Isaac, the son of promise, and how these two knuckleheads have been battering their own heads against each other since that time to the present day. And they went, 
Oh, so this is the gener- out of their mouth. This is generational sin. I was like, yes! I didn't have to go, you know, you shouldn't say that. We should let people just, you know, whatever, bring their baggage in and just go, okay, where did you hear that? Who told you? How did you arrive at that conclusion? Because that's an interesting conclusion. They go, do you like it? I go, it was powerful. It's a bunch of baloney, but it's powerful. I mean, I, I admire you that you thought this through. You don't agree with me? Not even slightly. Well, why not? Let me explain to you why. Let's go through the Bible. Let's talk about these things. Let's understand what happened historically. Let's take the time. That's, we don't realize that when somebody gets saved, the community will be challenged. And so when we think about Barnabas, we need to think about how do I respond? What, in what way do I help others come to that closer place of transformation? Because if you think about it, just, just going through the first nine chapters of Acts, We've read about Ananias and his life got changed, didn't it? What about the disciples in Damascus? They got changed. I mean, Saul got converted in their town. And then here's this guy running around and evangelizing all of these Jews. They're thinking, gosh, we've never done that. Can you, can you see what happens here? Is that this kingdom of God expansion, it affected the disciples in Damascus. It had def- definitely affected the Pharisees in Damascus. It affected the disciples in Jerusalem. It, if, it, it, it affected the Greek Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem. What do you think happened to Paul when he went to Tarsus? Church history tells us, and if you read the book of Galatians, Paul, I mean Saul, when he became Paul, was sent away to Damascus. The last thing we read, right? He was there for 14 years. What did he do for 14 years? Got closer to Jesus, right? But what happened to the town? And to, what happened to Tarsus as a result of having the apostle of Jesus in their midst for 14 years? See, I think we begin to realize that this whole expansion of the kingdom of God has limitless opportunities. Who knows what God is going to do, Reno Sparks? Who just knows? When you and I, filled with the Spirit, say, let's just do this. Let's just be led by the Spirit. And, you know, I'm not going to go so far as to say this is prophetic, but there is a prophetic edge to what God is going to do through you and me when we yield to the Holy Spirit. When, when we yield to the Holy Spirit, God says, oh, that means I can do anything. Yes, Lord, it scares me to death, but you, you can do whatever you want through me. Because that's the testimony of Paul. It wasn't just this evil man became a Christian and then became an apostle. Now we understand his conversion changed hundreds and thousands of people. His conversion changed the people in Damascus. His conversion did something in Barnabas' life. His conversion challenged the literal disciples of Jesus and had said, look, you guys have become slaves to fear. And so when you think about your life, you are never done when it comes to following Jesus. There are so many opportunities till the day you breathe your last. And I want us to believe that. I want us to all 
desire to become that kind of a Christian. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, there are just so many things that you can do with us, Lord. That just through our obedience and following you, how many people could be challenged? Just through Saul becoming Paul, he, cha- he changed Barnabas' life, Ananias, the, the people in Damascus, the people in Jerusalem, Caesarea, Tarsus, just through his conversion. Wow. Lord, help us to see it could be the same for us. It's like, how did Reno get changed? Well, those people up on that church hillside, they just started doing stuff. And it poured out of their doors and out onto the streets and into the casinos and the schools and the hospitals. And it just poured out. God, you can do that. We gave you permission to do that. It takes our breath away sometimes to think what you could do. But at the same time, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray they would use us greatly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. Amen. Go ahead and stand. So I love that Pastor Louie reads this. Where's that little prayer? He reads this to you. I had the little sheet with it and everything. Chris, you gave it to me. Where is it? Okay. There it is. Okay. I was still looking forward to this and I botched it terribly. Okay. So receive this prayer. Number six, 22 through 27. The Lord bless you. And the Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you. Be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Go out and do it. Be at peace. This has been a podcast presentation of Hillside Foursquare Church in Reno, Nevada. You can reach us via email at web at hillsidefour.org. That's W-E-B at hillside, the number four, dot org.